morning. Good to see you all. Uh, I know, anyone have uh, power go out yesterday? No, everyone's okay? A couple people? Yeah, I had my power go out, yeah, as well. So we had some good family bonding time. Um, again, I'm, I'm kind of always, you know, struggling with my voice. You know, you guys heard past couple of weeks, you know, but, um, <clears throat> and, I, and I try to do a lot of things during the week just to save my voice, like not talk, and people think I'm being really antisocial, and they're getting mad at me, you know, I'm not talking to you, but it's because I'm trying to save my voice, you know, for Sunday, okay? So, because Sunday is a day where it's like, I feel like, it's like I really want to bring it, right? I mean, bringing the message, right? I really want to bring it. And so, um, as I'm, like, in this place, and just wanting to, to bring whatever God has on my heart and, and, and to bring to your hearts as well. I uh, just want to encourage you to, to bring it as well, to, to bring yourself, you know, to be fully engaged with how God is speaking to you. Amen? Does that make sense? All right? All right. Awesome. Awesome. Good. Okay, so we've been in this series in Romans, and it's been great to go through, um, you know, section by section, really theme by theme through the book of Romans. I hope it's been really rich for you. And you can turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. And uh, this particular, we're just going to go over verses 1 and 2 today, uh, but this particular part of, of Romans, um, this, these two verses, they're known as the hinge verse in like, you know, academia terms. It's not really that academic, but a hinge, like a door hinge, all right? So Romans 12, 1 and 2 is known as the hinge verse of Romans. Why? It's like a door. Because Romans 1 through 11, everything that's taught there, it's all theology, most of it is all theology leads up to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And then everything that proceeds from Romans 12, 1 and 2 is practice. So you have theology and practice. Or in more you know, academic terms, it's the orthodoxy. Orthodoxy is right doctrine. Orthodoxy is in, in your mind, and then it gets in your heart, and then it leads into orthopraxy, which is practice. Now, <clears throat> the way that uh, Paul teaches Romans in this particular style of knowledge first, doctrine first, and then practice second. That is his normal practice. If you, in almost all of Paul's letters, that's the way he lays out his argument. It's what's in your mind first. It's your doctrine first, and that leads to how you're going to actually live your life. The reason he does it that way is because that's the way we all do it. I mean, that's the way that we live our life. The reason you do what you do, the reason you act the way you act, or you pursue the things that you think are important to you, is because you think that something is important. So the things that you think are worth pursuing, the things that you think are worth giving your energy over to, those are the things that you act upon, right? So if you're a follower of Christ, that's the way you think. You think God is maybe the biggest thing, or, you, or, you know, for a lot of us, sometimes God is not always the biggest thing. We're thinking about our career might be the biggest thing. Family life might be the biggest thing. Education might be the biggest thing. And so we pursue those things. And so what we think of is what we act on and what we pursue. If you're not a believer, so glad you're here. So glad this could be a space for you to explore and ask questions. In the same way, you do the same thing. The things that are important to you, that you think in your mind, your theology of life, of what is important to you, those are the things that you act on and pursue. We all do that, right? So you get an idea already of just how powerful your mind is. You, you get the idea already that every single person 
We all live our lives based on an orthodoxy, based on a theology of what we think is important. So in Romans chapter 12, verse 1 and 2, Paul is, is getting to this, this crux, this challenge. He's saying that what is it in your life that you believe so deeply about, right? He says, I want you to think about this that he's going to present to you. Whatever it is that you have orthodoxy about, about what's important to your life, or it's family, it's food, it's dating, it's relationships, or, or education, whatever it might be, I want to challenge you that there's this one thing, there's this one thing that ought to be your primary orthodoxy, your primary driving belief every single day, that every other orthodoxy itself then falls where it may be, or maybe more rightly is if we have this understanding of this one orthodoxy that Paul is going for, maybe all of our understandings of everything else, of education, of, of child-rearing and parenting and marriage, all of those things would fall under this one grand orthodoxy. So what is it? Here it is. Romans chapter 12, <clears throat> verses 1 and 2. This is what he says. He says, therefore, I exhort you brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God? What is good and well-pleasing and perfect? So, that, that therefore, this therefore in Romans chapter uh, 12, verse 1, it's the, most, it's the most famous, okay, it's the most famous therefore in all of Scripture. So, it would be appropriate to explain what the therefore is there for, okay? All right, so we're going to take a moment to do that, all right? Therefore, is the result of the ideas, the, the big themes that came before in chapters 1 through 11. So I'm going to go through them pretty quickly, all right? The first one, the first pillar is in Romans chapter 3. And it says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. We're all in the same bucket. We're the, the not perfect bucket, but we're a little more honest than because a lot of people say, well, I'm not perfect. Well, as Christians, we can just be more honest and just say we're, we've really messed up. We've really done some uh, wrong things. We're, we're all broken in some way. We've all hurt people. We've all taken advantage of people. We've had some of the most disturbing thoughts about others in our mind that we will never tell anyone else. There have been so many moments in our lives where we've been selfish or uncaring or unloving. And we've done evil, and we know that we have a great capacity in our own hearts for evil. And so we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and yet we are justified freely by Jesus' grace, God's grace, that came through, reduction, through the redemption of Jesus Christ. So this first pillar is this, is that God loves you. It's that God loves you no matter how sinful you are. God loves you no matter how sinful you are. Now, you think about that. I know some of it's, it's like kind of like old hat, but think about, think about how radical this truth is. Because you might expect an unconditional love, <clears throat> maybe, that comes from your parents. 
maybe, right? But once you leave home and get out into the real world, society, our, our, our culture does not baby you, right? We want you to perform. We want you to contribute. You're constantly being evaluated by how much you can produce. And we want you to be, not be a burden on society. Take care of your own self. No one's going to actually, society's not going to love you, right? And as a human race, we're not exactly known for how one group really cares deeply for another. It's just not what we're known for. But God looks at the human race, and God looks at all the things, the, the people that we are, the truth, the good, and the bad. And God says, I love you no matter who you are. I love you no matter what you've done. That's the first pillar. Now, and then you go to uh, Romans chapter 4, and Paul says this, <clears throat> However, to the one who does not work but trusts God who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited, credited as righteousness. Now, again, when you just, you have to let these words sink in. This just, we're not even talking about Jesus, but just as religion and like comparing religions, this is revolutionary. This is incredibly innovative in the world of religion if we were just comparing religions. What, what is this verse saying? <clears throat> you see, every major religion agrees with the first part of what we just said, that right, we're, all, we're all fallen, we're all sinful. And every major religion says this, because you're broken and because you owe the gods of the universe, or whatever it might be. What you need to do in order to get right, to be right, is you need to commit more. You need to do more. You need to serve more. You need to appease God more. You need to pay back. You need extreme discipline. You need to do. You need to achieve moral excellence in order to make up the difference. But this is a breakthrough concept. This is a breakthrough verse. It says, you are made right with God, through faith in Jesus. You are made right. You don't earn your right. You don't work to be right. You are made right with God through faith in Jesus. You see, God is the one who atones. You can't atone for your sin. God is the one who makes a difference because he knows that you can't. And that's what separates Christianity from every other religion, from every other kind of thought. You can't make it up yourself as much as you might try. This is revolutionary, so freeing. And then we go to Romans chapter 6 and 7, and I think chapter 6, verses 11 and 14, sum it up, and we spent, like, uh, I think two or three weeks on, on this particular uh, topic. Uh, Romans chapter 6, verse 11 and 14 says this, In the same way, count yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let me say it again. In the same way, count yourself. Like consider yourself dead to sin. Sin, don't bug me. You don't, you don't have that pull on me anymore. But alive to God in Christ Jesus. For sin shall no longer be your master. Now, it doesn't take long, right, for, for any of us to begin to realize just how, how messed up and, and how sinful we are. So, you know, my son, Mason, he's 10 years old. And in the last, you know, six months to a year, he, he, every day, every day, he's just, he's just coming to me. 
you know, and he's just starting to confess and just tell me, you know, dad, I did this, you know, last year, and I think I took some money from someone last year, and, you know, I think, you know, someone had a pencil, and I think I might have taken this pencil. It's kind of funny. He's trying to confess, but then he's not fully fessing up, you know, to everything that he does, and <clears throat> you guys, a lot of you guys know Mason. I mean, he's just like, he's the best kid, right? I'm sure every parent says that about their son, right? But really, my son really is the best. He really is the best kid. I mean, we love him so much. He's so much fun. Uh, Mia's not here. You know, he's my favorite. No, just kidding. You know, I wouldn't say that. Mia's on retreat with the rest of the, uh, rest of the, our, our uh, uh, youth. But um, Mason's a great kid. But you know what? Man, he's a sinner too. I mean, he really is. He's a sinner too. He's so messed up, you know? And there was one day, <clears throat> Or he came to me, and he was like, he was in tears, literally. And it's not because of me, all right? It's not because I'm preaching at him and telling him you're a sinner or something. I'm not doing that. But he's like, Dad, <clears throat> I can't control myself. There's like things that I know that are right, and you tell me certain things that I, I know that I need to do. I know they're right. This is, this is, these are his words. And he's, he's just in tears. He says, but I can't control myself. And so, you know, with, with that, you know, I'm trying to figure out, you know, as a parent, I'm trying to lead him to Jesus in the same way, right? You know, I don't just say, yeah, you're a sinner, dude, you know, deal with it. No, it's like I'm trying to talk to him, you know, about how you process these things and that, Mason, you, this is the why you need Jesus. You need to talk to God, and I'll help you, but we need to talk to God about these things. Here's the thing that you need to know in your life, especially if you're not a believer. I'm not trying to be mean. If you're not a believer, I'm not trying to be mean or anything like that, okay? But, <clears throat> you know, just like my son, he's like, I'm not in control. I can't control what I do. I can't control what I am. If you do not have a relationship with God, you're, actually, you're just like my son. You don't have actually any control over your life. I know you think you do. I know you're out there like doing it. You're killing it at work or whatever it is that you, your, your, doxology, your, your orthodoxy is about. You know, you're, killing, you're doing all these things. But I just want you to know that in the end, actually, you're just, you're just like my, my son that I love so much that you actually don't have any control because sin is in control. And the amazing, the beautiful, the powerful thing about the gospel is that sin in Christ is no longer your master. <laughs> to put it this way, the good news is that Jesus breaks the chains of sin so that we are free to live in him. Jesus breaks the chains of sin, the things that you know, like ethically, morally, relationally, that you shouldn't be doing. And to your horror, you, you do them anyway. Jesus breaks the power of sin in your life so that you are free to live in him. That's amazing. And then it just keeps getting better. And Romans chapter 8 is this. God is always for you. God is always for you because his spirit is always in you. God is always for you because his spirit is always in you. It means that no matter what circumstance you're in, and in some circumstances we find ourselves in, it just feels like the universe is against us, right? It feels like God is against us. We're wondering, like, why are you doing all this? Why are you putting us through, through all of these things? And this chapter speaks directly against that, <clears throat> that God is always for your best, that God is always loving you, that God is always working as well for his glory, his good, 
and your good. No matter the circumstances, God is always with you. And so he begins chapter 8 with verse 1 with an, another therefore, a smaller therefore, that really um, goes back to the last two chapters. But he says this, Therefore, there is no condemnation. Again, can you just imagine that? Imagine what your daily life would look like if you stopped condemning yourself. Think about that. Imagine what your daily life, what your daily thought life would be if you had less and fewer and fewer self-shaming, self-guilting, fearful, shameful, self-shaming thoughts. Because here in Christ Jesus, Paul says, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God doesn't condemn you because he's already atoned for your sin, past, present, and future. This love is so constant, it's so good, that Paul ends Romans chapter 8 with this, with this kind of riff. He's, he's so excited, he's so filled with the Spirit, and he begins on this, and he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Do you get that? Do you feel that in your life? No condemnation that Christ is always for you in every circumstance. Nothing can separate him. Nothing can separate his love from you. God is always in every single circumstances, in every moment, he is for you. Amen. Just gets better and better, right? And then <clears throat> we spent three weeks on chapters 9 through 11, and I'll sum it up like this. That God <clears throat> is fervently working for the redemption of the entire human race. God is fervently working for the redemption of the entire human race. Maybe if I would change that right now, it's like redemption of the whole world. Because God, as you know, when you come to that, say, God is not just redeeming people. God is redeeming systems. God is redeeming structures. God is redeeming the wholeness, the wholeness, holistic world. And this, in these verses, Paul <clears throat> uh, um, reveals an incredibly vulnerable part of his life where he looks at the way the gospel is pushing forward. And he sees that there's so many Jews that are not receiving Christ. Like, everyone who's coming under the cross are Gentiles. And he's a Jew himself, and he's like, where are all the Jewish people? And then he thinks, like, there's a way, is God, has somehow God messed up? Like, is this really true? Is this really real? And remember, he, he, he talks about his identification. We talked about this last week. That he identified with Elijah. Elijah, the one who ran away and said, God, I don't want to do this anymore. God, just count me out of your plan because this doesn't seem to be working. He's just so depressed. And Paul just reveals that this is how I felt about the Christian mission at one point in my life. But then what I realized, just like Elijah realized, is that there is a remnant. There is a group of people. And if there's a remnant, like I said, if there's a remnant, then there's a revival coming. 
And so Paul says, I don't understand the way it all works, how God can like choose people at one point, and then in chapter 10, there's people though that are choosing God. I don't know how it all works together. And I don't know how all of God's plan, his missional plan of redemption for the world, I don't know how it all works together, but I know God is going to work it out. And so I'm going to put all my faith and hope in that, that God loves people more than me, that God's plans and God's ways are higher than me. As I know God is fervently working for the redemption of all people. And so Tung put it so well, <clears throat> you know, how's that played out here in the Pacific Northwest is go have a lot of coffee with people. Go share Jesus with people any way you can. That's the spirit of God moving. And so God is fervently working for the redemption of the entire human race. And so, and so when Paul comes to that realization again, that God has this wonderful master plan and to get as many, many, many people to know the gospel and to know God's love. He ends chapter 11 with this. <clears throat> he says, oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. God's got it figured out. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We can't figure out you know, what God is doing, but there, we know it's good. Who has known the mind of the Lord, right? His ways are higher than ours. Or who has been his counselor? Who has told God, hey, God, we think you should do this? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. And with all of that, Paul then says, therefore, therefore, next slide. With everything that Paul has said, with all of the theology, with all the truths of all of God's mercies, in light of all of that, Paul then says, opens with chapter 12, verse 1, therefore, what do we do? Therefore. I exhort you, exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, <clears throat> meaning all the mercies I've described to you, to present your body as a living sacrifice, as a, present your body alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. It's like when you, so when you, you see that, it's like, what do you do? What do you do with a God that's so good? What do you do with news that is so amazing? Uh, what do you do with a love that's never failing? What do you do with a hope that's never ending? What do you do with a God that's so relentless in his pursuit that he would give his own son to die for us? What do you do with a God who is so full of justice and righteousness and mercy and grace? What do you do with a God like that? Therefore, present yourself. Offer yourself. Offer your bodies. And, and please, don't confuse this with, you know, God has done something, something, God has done, some, has done something for you, and now because God did something for you, you must, you owe him payback. Like, this isn't a deal that God's making with you, where God saved me, and then I'll serve you forever. God, you know, saved me, and then I'll quit my job, and I'll be a missionary. That's not what this is. This is not about <clears throat> giving up your life. This is about being caught up in the one who gives you life and sustains 
your life. And so Paul says, present, present yourself a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God. And we know that in, in ancient cultures, right, <clears throat> uh, you know, you read the Old Testament, they used to burn sacrifices. They would do that to atone for sin. To atone for sin, life somehow, it needed to be extinguished to pay for the sin. But Paul completely redeems the imagery, kind of flips it on his head. When you come to the altar, there's no sin to atone for anymore. Jesus already did that. So your life isn't extinguished. Your life is resurrected. Your life is given back to you. So then he's saying, let your body, when you come to the altar, when you come to God, let your body, your, your life is given back to you. It's been resurrected. So let your body be free to burn in the passion of Christ, to burn with the author of life, and do it as an act of freedom, as an act of worship. It's not a command. It's, it's self-evident that love must be a choice. That's why Paul says he exhorts you. He doesn't command you. This is really important. He says, I exhort you. And then in other, there's so many different, um, uh, you know, uh, translations. Uh, also, he says, I urge you. It's in the NIV. I plead with you. King James, I beseech thee. You know, I beseech you. Um, ESV, I appeal. And then my favorite in the contemporary English version, Paul says, I beg you. I beg. He's begging you, right? Make this, this thing, this presenting your body to God, offering your life to God, make that the defining orthodoxy of your life. Presenting yourself to God, presenting your bodies every single morning, every single day, make that the overarching, the defining orthodoxy, the defining doctrine of your life. Every single morning, I'm presenting myself to God. Because God is the one who's been so good to you. God is the one who's redeemed you. And God is the only hope to redeem all of humanity. And so give yourself over to that. And then Paul casually <clears throat> adds, I mean, it just sounds so casual, um, which is so powerful. He says, which is your reasonable service. And just think about those words. He says, doing this, like giving your all, your body, your everything, just everything, how you think and how you live, give it all to Jesus. He says, this is just something you should do that's just reasonable. Reasonable. And I love that translation too. Now, this past week, <clears throat> I know that there was the, you know, we we're all so, so heartbroken and disturbed by the, the shooting that was in Florida. And as we learn about the victims, and some of you, you know, you know hopefully have gone through the, the pages and just seen the, the lives that were tragically lost, we know that two of them, you know, were teachers. There was, there was one teacher named Scott Beagle. He was only 35 years, years old, he was a geography teacher. Uh, another one, um, another teacher named Aaron Feast. He's only 37 years old. He's assistant football coach. And so all the students, of course, when they talk about their, those teachers and how we would describe them as well, we would say they're, they're heroic. Rightly so, we would describe them as being heroic, heroic because they, they shielded students from the bullets that, that were flying. But here's the thing that, like, that you and I both know, that if we were able to speak with these teachers... If they were here, if they've survived, and, and if we could say, and if we would say things like, you're our hero, or you're heroic, 
right? We, we know what their reply would be. Their reply would be something along the like this. I was just doing my job. I was just doing my job. I was just doing what any reasonable teacher would do who loves and protects their students, right? I mean, that's what they would say. They wouldn't call themselves heroic. They were just being, they would say they were just being reasonable. Reasonable. That's what love does. When you present yourself to Jesus in light of all of God's mercies, it just makes sense to do that. Yes, it's an act of faith, but to present yourself completely to God is also logical. It, it just makes sense. It's reasonable. It's completely reasonable for a young man or a young woman, top of the class, um, to say, you know what? I want to give my full intellect. I want to give my full talent. I want to give all my competency. I want to give all my resources. I just want to offer it all to God. Why? Because God gave his best to me. I think that's just being reasonable. It's really reasonable for, you know, a busy, stay-at-home mom, super busy. It's really reasonable for her to say, you know, I'm going to volunteer my time at the local f shelter, or I'm going to volunteer my time at the local food bank. Why? Because God has done everything to feed my soul. I mean, it's just reasonable. It just makes sense that I would do that. It's reasonable for a talk executive of a law firm on the east side says, I'm going to commute into Seattle, Seattle twice a week to be a big brother or a big sister for an underserved youth. Why? Well, the executive would say, it's just reasonable because I've been adopted into God's family. I want to let others know that they've been adopted into mine. It's just reasonable for me to feel that way. It's reasonable for a couple with two young children to be stirred by the missional vision of God, to quit their jobs, to go to seminary, land in a third world country, to tell others about Jesus. It's completely reasonable for them to think that way because God, they would say God went completely out of his way to reach them. None of these people would dare label. I would never dare label my choice to be a pastor. None of these people would ever dare label their decisions as heroic, as noble. I would not even label my decision as even being honorable. I was just being reasonable. It's just being reasonable in light of all that God has done for us. And so the question is for all of us, what part of your life do you need to present to God? Because a lot of us hold back a little bit, don't we? Hold back a 10%, 15%, or you know, a particular area of our life. And it's just reasonable to offer it all to him, but just to be easy and gentle on us, let's just start small. Maybe there's just one aspect of your life that you've been saying, God, have, you know, created a fence around here. You can have everything else, but here's this one part that's really important to me, and I want to be in control of it. What part of your life do you need to present to God? Maybe it's the financial part of your life. God, I really don't want to give. I'm really in a lot of debt, or God, I just, I just don't want to tithe. I just don't understand. The reasonable person says, God actually gave me 100%. 
I'm just worshiping him with 10. For Asians, I'm just going to say, that's a really good deal. I mean, you get 100%, you only get 10% back. I mean, that's, that's a really good deal, right? Right? <clears throat> that's reasonable. That's more than reasonable. That's a great deal. Maybe for some of you, it's, it's, maybe it's not something tangible that you feel like you need to give to God. It, it could be something in your heart. It's, maybe it's this thing called trust. God, I'm going to give you my trust. I'm going to trust you for my life. God, I'm going to, I'm going to trust you for things going on um, with, with my spouse. And I'm not going to try to put all of this on myself. But God, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow your ways, not mine. For some of you, it's, it's your career. Because once you get to work, it's like you're not really Christian anymore. It's kind of like me, like once, once, only until I've had my coffee, I become a Christian, you know? Right? You know? It's like, so for some of you, when you walk through those doors, something happens in your brain, and it's like, no, this, this area is my area, God. You don't really, you don't really work in, in, in these entrepreneurial, whatever it is, things that you're doing. And maybe God is saying, you know, I've been, you, you pray about the kingdom coming. You pray about the, God's will being done. But you kind of cut out the main area where I'm trying to get my kingdom come and your will to be done in your work, in, the, in your coworkers, in your bosses, and the people around you. Why aren't you presenting that fully to me? Because I want to do something through you there. Maybe God is calling you to leave your career. It could be to be a, I don't know, go work for a nonprofit or full-time missionary or pastor. You can never outgive, never outserve, outlove God. You can never do that. Giving our life in worship is just a reasonable response to the mercies of God. It just makes sense. All right? So lastly, what Paul does in verse 2, he answers this question. Because you don't really need me to tell you this, you know, of, because of what God has done, present our bodies, right? I mean, you don't really need me to tell you that. That's, that's there. But Paul's answered this question. How do you keep that passion burning? Because we get so distracted, right? When you go to work and when you get home and you have all these good intentions, but when you actually get to the place, you're like, oh, what am I, you know? You just get into the mix of the stress. You kind of conform to what you're walking into. How do you keep that passion burning? He says this, verse 2. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. So you need to notice this. What in your life, how do you keep your, your, how do you keep your heart burning? Passionate for Christ. <clears throat> Notice this, what is either being conformed, conformed, or what is being radically transformed, conformed or transformed, is your mind. It all begins in your mind, just like verse 1. It all begins in your mind. It's, it's the orthodoxy. You think a certain way, and you will act a certain way. And so my temptation and your temptation is that we would present our mind and body and spirit to this world 
and be conformed to it. That's the temptation. So I was just kind of thinking just a little bit, because we all, you know, we're in this particular part of the world, Pacific Northwest, right? What does it mean to be conformed in the image of the Pacific Northwest? That's what I thought about. So I thought about these things. Well, it's not cool to talk about your faith, all right? It's not acceptable, you know, to, to introduce those things and to work or whatever it might be. Uh, in the Pacific Northwest here, we lean hard politically to the left. There's a lot of political ideology, a lot of political talk. A lot of people take all that upon as their identity. Uh, we're typically intolerant to faith, or faith is seen as intolerant in itself or irrelevant. Uh, besides those political ideologies, it's just we're just taking care of ourselves, taking care of myself and my family. And we bring this consumerism not only into just our daily lives and what we purchase and what we buy and what we want to get, but we even bring it into church. You're not doing this enough for me. Now, the problem with conformity, okay, the problem with conformity is that it keeps you safe. It ke- you feel safe. You feel like, yeah, I'm not rocking the boat. It keeps you safe, but it c- also keeps you impotent. It keeps you safe, but it keeps you impotent at the same time. Why? The point of conformity is this. Is the point of conformity is just to take on existing ideas. You're confined to the existing ideas of popular culture. And the problem is that there aren't a lot of great ideas that are really working, right? We see a lot, I see a lot of ideas of people that get people richer. I see a lot of those ideas. I see a lot of new ideas that play on people's fears, people's felt needs, people's political ideology, but I don't see a lot of new ideas that are really making people better, that are really progressing the human soul and the human heart and and humanity's best in a better way. I don't see a lot of new ideas that shape and challenge and inspire people with real change, but that's the point of conformity. It kills entrepreneurism. Conformity kills innovation. Because the only ideas that you're allowed to have if you're conformist are to have the old ideas or dominant culture ideas that have been around for centuries but are just repackaged every two decades. We need Christians who will be guided by the transforming creativity and innovation that comes from being in a relationship with the mind, the vision, the heart of the creator God. We need believers who have presented their whole bodies to God to be transformed in their minds so they can discern and receive from God his perfect and good and pleasing will so that his kingdom come, his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We're just doing what the earthly people want to do, not enough of what God's kingdom wants to do in this earth. You say these two things. A transformed Christian is an innovative Christian. A transformed Christian is an innovative Christian. And a transformed Christian is an entrepreneurial Christian. Because when you're presenting your whole mind, body, competency, talent, intellect, and you combine that in conjunction with God's relentless love, his compassion, his justice, his righteousness, You bring the full resources of the kingdom from up there into down here, and you will be innovative, and you will be entrepreneurial in what you do. Because God's mind is much better at handling the issues that are going on down here so that we can bless our city, so that we might think of education differently, 
We might think of government differently. We might think of healthcare differently. We might think of mental illness differently. We might think of doing business differently. We might think of the arts differently. We might think of the relationship between church and school differently. And that we might even think of church differently. And as a Christian pastor, I do not want to be conformed. Conformity would kill me. Conformity that just snuffs out all innovation, all creativity, all entrepreneurship of what the kingdom of God can do in this world? Come on. Nobody wants that. I don't want that. It would kill me. I want to be caught up in this life that is life. I want to be transformed by the renewing of my mind as my mind interacts with the redemptive, the creative, the graceful, compassionate, the superior and graceful intellect of God. Man, that's what I want. One of the biggest temptations is for Christians is this, is to conform to this, is to think that technology and government are going to save the day. I think that's our biggest temptation. The temptation to think that we don't need God. All we need is technology, better technology, and better government, and that'll solve all of our problems. That is our biggest temptation today. Take God out of the equation of it all. I want to read the um, <clears throat> Declaration of Independence, okay? It says this. It says, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are uh, created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The, these words from Constitution, they're radical. They really are. They're radical. But what you need to understand is that where did these thoughts come from? They, they, they came from a person who had some ideas about God. Now, Thomas Jefferson, you know, there's, there's different, you know, theories of like, you know, how close to God was he or things like that. But all we know is that back then, okay, there's just culture was immersed, steeped in Christian understanding and values. And what he says is that these things of equalness, equity, unalienable rights, respect, Life, liberty, pursuit of happiness, these are things that are self-evident that they come from God. It's just self-evident that they come from God. See, the temptation today is to think that all these things are normal and right, and we pursue these things, but they don't, God's not in the equation. The innovation of these words itself came from a mind that was influenced by God. You see, if we take these things out, if we take God out of the equation, that innovation ceases to exist. Romans chapter 1, verse 21 says this, when we take God out of the equation, it says this, for although they knew God, they neither glorified him as good, neither glorified him as God, or gave thanks to him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images, for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. <clears throat> and what Paul is saying is that when we conform ourselves to the world and take God out of the equation, we're conformed and we become more like animals instead of being transformed into what is truly human and truly beautiful and truly more and more into the image of God. And 
maybe, just maybe, <clears throat> what we really need, we don't need better technology. That's not the answer, although it's nice. <clears throat> and maybe what we really need isn't better government to solve our problems. We need a better president. We need better politicians. Like, that would solve everything. But maybe what we really, really need, what we truly need, is greater, greater love. Maybe that's what we really need. Love that covers a multitude of sins. Love that actually cares about our neighbor, that gives our lives for one another. Where does this love come from? It comes from those who on a daily basis are presenting their bodies to God as a sacrifice to bless the world. That's where it comes from. That's the answer. Paul says, give yourself to that. Give yourself fully, completely to that. Because that is the most significant thing that you could give your life to. Present yourself to God. Church, would you bow your heads? So in light of all that God has done in Jesus Christ, in light of all the love poured out for us and his spirit that dwells in us, in light of the spirit's indwelling grace to overcome, to break the chains of sin in your life and to live a life that is fueled by the spirit's presence, what are you holding back? Give everything to God. And so, again, just being nice and being gentle, what is that one area, what is that one thing that you want to present to God? And what you do is every single morning, you say, God, this, this is the area that I've kind of closed off to you, but God, when I go into work, uh, I'm going to quit calling it my work, and I'm going to call it your work. I'm going to call it your, your mission field. I'm, I'm going to call it your place where your kingdom comes. And God, when it comes to, to my bank account <clears throat> and what I keep myself, God, I'm just, I want to give that area to you. And God, instead of calling it all mine, God, I want to call it all yours. And I call it all yours, I'm just being reasonable because you're the one who's given me everything. And God, when it comes to my dating life and you know, how I treat my significant other or how I treat my spouse, you know, I don't, I don't need a Bible verse to tell me, you know, that, uh, about purity. When you came and rescued me, you rescued me and loved me and presented me as holy. You preserved me, presented me as holy. I don't need a Bible verse to tell me that I want to keep my significant other. I want to present him, her, holy to you. I want to present my wife my husband, holy unto you. I present myself, Father, unto you. You poured out your life for me on the cross. And God, for me to worship you with the life you've given me, to give everything in this part of my life over to you is the only reasonable response. Thank you, Father, for this morning. God, we love you so much. Thank you for your word. <clears throat> and I know that for a lot of us, these things of giving aspects of our lives over to, to you seem like a really big challenge. And I'm not discrediting that. 
But Lord, at the same time, you've told us through your word, if we really understand this grand orthodoxy of the incredible mercy of everything that God has done for us, then giving this area of our life is just reasonable. And so, God, we just want to be a reasonable people. <laughs> we want to be a really reasonable people. And we want to say, God, our lives are yours. Our work is yours. Our finances are yours. Our children are yours. Our spouses are yours. Our significant others are yours. God, my trust, my heart, God, those things, they're all yours. And would you use them for the glory of your kingdom to bless the world. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, church. Let's all stand. Let's sing together.